Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Department of Danger by Jack Lancer, Volume 6, Chapter 16, House of Horrors. The man was perched high on one of the statues of the Victoria Memorial, touching a camera to his face as if about to snap a picture, but he wasn't photographing the pipers or red-coated guardsmen. The lens was aimed straight at Chris. Even as the teen agent swung around to scan the crowd across the street, he had seen the lens shift slightly to keep him in focus, and the cameraman was unmistakably the same sinister toad thug who had climbed out of the black Bentley the night before. It was over in a split second. Chris dropped to the ground and heard a metallic ping. A glittering steel needle had struck one of the blackened bars of the tall iron grill fence around the palace courtyard, and flinging himself to the pavement, Chris had collided with several spectators. There were angry mutters, which changed instantly to expressions of concern as Chris went into his stricken stretcher case act. Oh dear, what's wrong with him? The lad's ill. Call a policeman. Are you all right? Chris was rolling his eyes and clutching his chest dramatically. It's, it's, my, 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 cardiac. I, I, I sometimes have these attacks. A bobby and a policewoman came rushing over. Oh, keep an eye on him, the bobby told his companion. Ring up the station. Have them send an ambulance straight away. The changing of the guard was still going on in all its pomp. Drums beating, feet clumping, hoarse voices bellowing commands. Then the slow march as the old guard and the new guard approached each other for the handing over of the keys. Mentally, Chris apologized to the whole brigade for upstaging their show. The ambulance arrived, its siren dying to a plate of wine as it screeched to a halt at the curb. Chris was examined by a puzzled, white-coated intern and lifted onto a stretcher. Easy, lad, said one of the attendants. Just as they loaded him into the ambulance, Chris noted the royal standard fluttering above the palace. It meant the queen was at home. wonder if she caught my act, Chris thought. Then the doors were slammed shut and the ambulance roared off. In the distance, Chris could hear the faint strains of the band striking up the British grenadier. Well, it's a nice send-off anyhow, he mused. The events at the hospital proved a trifle more embarrassing. It took a full three-quarters of an hour of red tape an electrocardiogram and a discreet phone call to the Department of Danger before Chris could get himself released. It was past one o'clock when he joined Spice and Geronimo at the restaurant where they had agreed to meet. What did that guy fire at you with his trick camera? Geronimo asked. Some kind of metal needle. Poisoned, I assume. Foley at sending a couple of men to look for it. Jerry spotted the guy right after it happened, Spice reported but he got away before Sitting Bull could scalp him. Just as well, Chris said. That way, Toad has no tip-off that I was being covered. 
You reacted pretty fast. They might get suspicious. Chris grinned dryly. After all, a toad courier is supposed to keep his eyes open, isn't he? Can I help it if I'm quick-witted? Look, Chris, let's be serious. Spice's green eyes deepened with concern. You know for sure the toad has you measured for a coffin. Do you still intend to try to make contact and get hold of that package for Nikos? Chris shrugged. Well, somehow I'll have to convince them that I'm their man. The job's important and it has to be done. Besides, I'm committed now to see this thing through for the Department of Danger. Spice looked at him for a long moment, then gave up with a sigh. All right, Mr. Cool Cat. So you'll be keeping your date with Little Miss Pamela at the Wax Museum this afternoon, then? Right. I'll play Lost, and maybe she'll put in a good word for me a Toad. Chris finished his apricot trifle and took a sip of coffee. But first, I've got a chat scheduled with Agatha, Duchess of Soho, at three o'clock. Geronimo grinned. Quite a busy social calendar in London. One gay, mad roundabout, Spice added. At Hyde Park, the afternoon assortment of soapbox orators, hecklers, and onlookers were slowly gathering in Speaker's Corner across from the Marble Arch. Chris took in the faces and accents of the crowd. East Indian, West Indian, Cockney, African, American. His eyes stopped suddenly on a stout, tweed-skirted figure. Well, there you are, darling, he thought. He walked up behind her and cleared his throat. Do forgive me for barging up like this, but you are the Duchess of Soho. I The twinkle died from Chris's eyes as the lady turned. It wasn't Agatha, Duchess of Soho. Or was she? The shapeless hat, the bird's nest of brindle hair, the clothes. They all jibed. But instead of a lorgnette, she was peering at him through thick lens bifocals, and her upper lip failed to cover a mouthful of buck teeth. I beg your pardon, young man. Um, I'm sorry, ma'am. I made a mistake. I thought you were somebody else. The glasses gave the woman a disturbing impression of high-powered twin headlights. Chris backed away, mumbling apologies. The woman had to be Agatha. The coincidence was too much, but if so, why the bifocals and the buck teeth? An easy disguise, of course, but why? Chris was sure his own disguise was no barrier to recognition under the circumstances, especially since she'd even recognized his voice over the phone. She might have another very good reason for taking cover, though. Enemy agents, perhaps? Chris wondered. He edged cautiously away from the crowd to a more sheltered spot among some trees. From there, he gazed around watchfully. Chris's practiced eye could detect no one who'd look like a possible toad agent. He glanced at his watch. 3.12. Nobody else resembling Agatha was anywhere in view. Chris's sixth sense warned him to leave. He circled through the park and then went out by the Grosvenor Gate. Finally, after doubling back and forth to make sure he wasn't being shadowed, he joined the other two teen agents at a wimpy bar. Geronimo was munching a London hamburger, and Spice was enjoying an early tea. Chris reported his experience in Hyde Park. 
We're getting nowhere fast, Geronimo said gloomily. Courage, friends. Let's not throw in the towel till I've talked to Pamela. Chris ordered tea, and the trio spent the next half an hour or so laying out their plans carefully. At last they left the wimpy bar and caught a taxi. The afternoon was turning dark. The sky had clouded over, and a fog was sweeping in over London from the Thames. Chris got out of the cab two blocks from Madame Macabre's and walked the rest of the way. He wanted to arrive alone. Geronimo and Spice would keep the place under surveillance. He bought a ticket at the museum entrance and went inside. A jovial guard smiled at him at the entrance to the Gallery of Living History, which occupied all the main floor. Chris was about to smile back and drop a friendly remark when he realized that the guard was a wax dummy. Jeez, thought Chris. These jokers are a little too lifelike. Inside was an eye-popping array of figures. Famous kings and queens of England. Richard the Lionhearted. Henry VIII, Good Queen Bess, Victoria, then more recent heads of state, Churchill in his coveralls with a big cigar, President Franklin D. Roosevelt with his opera cape and jaunty cigarette holder, Stalin, Hitler, John F. Kennedy, sports champions followed, Russian and American astronauts. Chris? The teenager turned and saw Pamela. Hey, baby, he said with a grin. How quietly you snuck up on me. Good thing, too. I just assumed not appetize this little rendezvous. She had left off her insect glasses and was looking very girlish. Pamela glanced around nervously. Let's go downstairs where it's nice and dim. Downstairs was the House of Horrors. Marat was being stabbed in the bath, Marie Antoinette on the guillotine. Jack the Ripper in action. You realize I'm risking my neck to help you, Pamela murmured. Don't think I don't appreciate it, Chris said, but I think I would like a wee inkling of what you have in mind. Pamela's eyes flitted uneasily about the long, dimly lit chamber. I think I can get you out of the country safely. Look, Pamela, Chris pleaded. If I get back to the States without my mission accomplished, I'm finished with Toad over there. Can't you get your people here to listen to me without pulling a gun right away? I can try, but your place isn't safe. You'd better hide out somewhere else. Like where? Just trust me, will you? Who could look in those big baby blue eyes and say no, Chris replied. Not to mention the fact that I don't have much of a choice. Pamela said the next step was to wait. They wandered about the chamber with the other museum visitors, looking at the wax dummies of the famous murderers. Presently, the visitors began to thin out as closing time neared. Seizing her chance when no one was looking, Pamela steered Chris aside into a small storage closet and closed the door. Hey, what's the idea? he whispered. Shh, you'll see. Soon they could hear the voices of the museum attendants shepherding out the last visitors and locking up for the night. Pamela and Chris sat side by side in the darkness. An hour passed. Finally, Chris detected a faint, spooky noise in the outer chamber. Time to go, Pamela said. They got up and emerged cautiously from the closet. 
Chris switched on his pocket flashlight and played it over the eerie wax figures. In spite of himself, he shuddered at the sight of Simon Taw, the Liverpool murderer. Had the dummy actually moved? There was something oddly familiar about that thick-set figure and whiskery face. Chris stifled a sudden yelp. The dummy had just smiled at him. Then its hand moved and pulled off the beard. Colonel Buttram? Good evening, my dear chap, said the colonel, fingering his mustache. Sorry I had to keep you waiting so long. Something hard pressed into the small of Chris's back, and he heard Pamela giggle. April Fool, Chris, baby. Isn't it cozy the way we've trapped you? Toad always does these things with so much style. Chapter 17 Sniper's Hand So, he had walked straight into a toad trap. Well, at least Geronimo and Spice would follow wherever Buttram would take him. Chris sighed. Really, Pamela? What a tatty trick to play on your trusting boyfriend. My dear fellow, said Colonel Buttram, you should feel honored as the chief of British Toad. I don't usually take part in tuppany operations of this sort, but your case interested me so much, I decided to oversee it personally. The pleasure is all yours, I'm afraid, Colonel, said Chris. Buttram produced a handsome pearl-handled firearm and a flashlight of his own, and kept Chris covered while Pamela taped his wrists together. Then she gagged him with a twisted silk handkerchief. With a chuckle, Colonel Buttram walked over to the corner of the room and lugged back the original statue of Simon Taw. You must forgive my little prank, he said to Chris. Having picked a wax museum as the scene of our trap, I couldn't resist giving you a bit of a start just now. Spot of humor, you know. Ha! Ha! ha. The Colonel guffawed heartily. I trust Madame Macabre won't object to our use of her premises in this fashion. Simply stole a few keys from one of the guards on his way home. He prodded Chris with his pearl-handled convincer. Now then, lad, out you go. They went up a stairway to the back door and out into a high-walled yard. The sky was pitch dark with only a pale ghastly glow of light from the street and the buildings around them. Through the dark, swirling fog, Buttram's flashlight beam revealed a black van standing in the yard. Chris was ordered to climb in. The doors were locked and the van rolled away into the night. Think positive now, boy, he reminded himself. Keep track of turns. Chris got the impression they were heading in a northerly direction. Sometime later, the van seemed to go down into a tunnel. He could hear the rumble of the wheels echoing back from the walls. Then they came to a stop. Sounds of a heavy metal door sliding open. The van moved forward again briefly, then stopped, and the doors of the cargo compartment were opened. End of the line, lad, Colonel Buttram gestured. Out! Another man, pug-nosed with a cauliflower ear, whom Chris took to be the driver, stood by, watching. Pamela was nowhere in sight. Chris looked around curiously. They were in a concrete-walled garage containing several other vehicles. One of them was a black Bentley. Move, said Buttram, prodding Chris again. Straight ahead. Entering a small modern elevator, they rose to a higher level and stepped out into a room furnished like a doctor's surgery. 
Its twin windows were curtained but open to the night, and slight wisps of fog came drifting in. Beyond the room was an office. A dark, slender, bearded man with close-set, sinister-looking eyes stood near the doorway. Ah, Vignelli, Buttram greeted him. So you arrived from Geneva, hmm? And how go things at our central directorate? Well enough, the man said curtly. He nodded his head at Chris. And who is this? Our courier from North American Wing, or perhaps I should say, pseudo-courier. Buttram pressed a button and two men came hurrying into the surgery. Both wore black turtleneck sweaters under white lab smocks. One removed Chris's gag and untaped his wrists and Chris was ordered to strip to his shorts. Before obeying, Chris paused to chafe his wrists and managed to flick the stem of his watch from emergency transmit to off. It was fortunate he did so, because the watch was taken away as soon as he undressed. The two attendants slung him roughly onto a white-sheeted table and pinioned his arms and ankles. Colonel Buttram stood at an electronic console and flicked a switch. Chris jerked under a jolt of electricity. He was terrified. Bit of a tickle, eh? Buttram said. Actually, that's just a mild foretaste of what's to come, if you don't answer my questions. I'll do my best, Chris replied. Stay cool, stay cool, control yourself. The first question came quickly. What happened at Kennedy Airport before you took off for London? I got picked up by FBI agents. They took me downtown and asked me a flock of questions. What about? Buttram inquired. My family background, what I'm studying at school, my father, stuff like that. And you were able to answer them? Sure, why not? I'm Chris Cool. I know all about myself, don't I? Anyway, they let me go, and I got booked on a later flight. Why didn't you report all this to Nikos? How could I? Chris retorted. I had no way to reach him, not even a phone number. Buttram scowled thoughtfully. All right. Now about Lustig. What happened there? Chris told him the entire truth. You got no look at whoever had been there before you? No. Very well, said Buttram. Which brings us to Drakoff. Has he tried to contact you? Let's say I contacted him, or at least I tried to. Chris calmed his rapid breathing somewhat and continued. They put a tail on me. That guy, Pivani? I worked him over a bit, and he promised to fix up a meeting with Trakoff. It was to be at the British Museum, but the cops got there first. And that business at the gunsmiths yesterday? How did that come about, huh? Pivani had flown the coop by the time I broke out of the hospital, his landlady gave me Musgrave's address. It was written on a scrap of paper he left in his room. Chris paused and added, Is it okay if I ask a question? Ask away, said Buttram. A guy in a car must have followed me when I left Musgrave's, tailed me all the way to the rooming house where I was holed up. A gray Humber? Was it Toad's? Buttram shook his head. Not ours. Must have been Pivetti's or someone covering for him. Point of fact, I was to meet him at Musgrave's for a bit of a powwow. We'd set the meeting up with Drakoff. The Hummer probably went along to give Pivani backup support. 
I see. Well, anyhow, Chris went on, another Drakoff man jumped me at Shepherd's Market last night. Some joker with an RAF mustache. We had a friendly tussle and I took his dark gun away. Then we started out in a car to beat Drakoff, with two guys and a black Bentley rammed us. Your boys, I suppose. Only I wasn't sure at the time. Besides, I figured it was safer to act scared in case word got back to Drakoff. They might get wise that I was working for Toad, so I took off. Meanwhile, the two lab attendants had emptied the pockets of his clothes. One handed the anesthetic pen to Buttram. Patented fires anesthetic dots, sir. Buttram and Vignelli both examined it. Where'd you get this little toy? The colonel asked Chris. The Drakoff man last night. I told you I took his dark gun away. And this wristwatch radio? Buttram pursued as the other attendant handed it to him. Same thing. The guy slipped it to me right after we were rammed. Told me to call Drakoff over it. And I'd be given further orders about where to meet. I tried three or four times, but nobody responded. I suppose he forgot to give me the password call signal or something. Buttram opened the watch case and called for a magnifying glass. After examining the microcircuitry inside, he dialed the stem into voice transmit position. Try calling again, he whispered, holding the watch near Chris's lips. Christopher Cool calling Drakoff. Christopher Cool calling Drakoff. Come in, please. The open use of his name was an urgent teen code signal that something was wrong and that the caller was in enemy hands. As he expected, there was no response. Buttram switched off the watch and handed it back to the attendant. Vignelli broke in impatiently. Why waste time? His information is not particularly useful. Dispose of him. Chris turned his head to flick away the beads of sweat trickling over his face. His eyes suddenly widened. A hand holding a Luger pistol was reaching into one of the windows. Look out! he yelled instinctively. The toad men flung themselves to the floor as a shot thundered through the room. With split-second reflexes, the two lab attendants and the van driver began firing back. Then, as the assassin's hand was withdrawn, they leapt to their feet and dashed out of the room in pursuit. Buttram and McNelly rose from the floor. The colonel's ruddy face had gone pale, and he brushed one hand across his cheek. Run it up, creased me, that shot did. You yelled just in time, laddie buck. A few minutes later, the three toad headsmen returned. Drock off, agent, one reported. He jiggered the alarm system. We're taking care of him, though. Big 12 says it's the same bloke that resided Casey in the layout last week. Buttram chuckled coldly. The Drockoff network's getting a bit above itself these days. Well, we shall have to do something about that, won't we? Meanwhile, what about this one? Vignelli nodded his head toward Chris. We've wasted enough time, in my opinion. Just kill him. Come on, old boy, can't do that. Lad just saved my life, after all. Vignelli's face showed cold disapproval. I might understand that you wish me to report to the Central Directorate that you are paroling a possible dangerous double agent? Buttram grinned slyly. No, but right now, young Cool might be very useful to us. 
How? I have an idea. Let me think some more about it. Chris was unstrapped from the table, photographed and fingerprinted. Then Buttram told him to put on his clothes. As Chris tucked his shirt into his trousers, he managed to rip off the bottom shirt button and let it drop down his pant leg to the floor. With a nudge of his foot, he kicked it out of sight in the general direction of the adjoining office. Lock him up for the night, Buttram ordered. The attendants took Chris down a hallway into a windowless room. A recessed ceiling light filled the cell with a pale glow. The furnishings consisted of a table, chair, and cot. Someone's probably watching me on a TV monitor, Chris thought. Kicking off his shoes and loosening his tie, he stretched out on the cot, hands clasped behind his head. One finger pressed the button at the back of his Ivy League shirt collar. This was a tiny radio receiver capable of picking up the transmission from the bottom bug which he had just dropped. The pressure of Chris's fingers switched on the receiver, which had a length of antenna wire woven into the shirt fabric. A faint voice reached Chris's ear, the voice of Vignelli, no doubt speaking from the office adjoining the surgery. I think, Colonel Batram, it is now time for a full report on your project with Wong Su. The Central Directorate is most interested in this matter. Quite so, Buttram's voice replied. Wong was a top-red Chinese biochemist, but he was dissatisfied and wanted greater rewards, especially when he was getting close to success on the Z-Factor formula. And what is that? The Z-Factor, as we call it, its Chinese name being quite unpronounceable, is a chemical agent for bringing about mutations in living organisms. These mutations result in giant growth. Applied to pests, such as insects, which breed rapidly, this could result in a terrifying threat to human life. Can you imagine, for example, an enemy country overrun by giant ants? I decided that such a weapon would make a very useful addition to our toad arsenal, so I took steps to obtain it. Most enterprising of you, said Vignelli. Through our Hong Kong contacts, Buttram went on, we had Wong smuggled out of China and brought to England. In return for a laboratory set up here and a price of one million pounds sterling, Wong agreed to turn over his formula to us as soon as it was perfected. And did he perfect it? He did. Then came a bad setback. One of his lab specimens got loose and nearly killed him. Wong was found by the police, badly mauled, and is now in the hands of British authorities. Since then, we've been unable to decipher his lab notes, but all we have on hand is a small amount of the Z-Factor chemical. My technical men haven't been able to analyze it so far. I see, Vignelli said coldly. And what is American towards part in this project? Nikos made a deal with me to underwrite half the cost of the project. I sent three giant hornets to him and one of our smuggling vessels as proof that the formula worked. They were to be turned loose offshore and home in on an ultrasonic signal. Unfortunately, Buttram gave a rasping cough. Nico's men who were to receive the insects were nabbed by the American police. We've no idea what happened to the hornets. A badly run operation, said McNally. The director will be most displeased. Luck of the game, you know. 
Drakoff Network also has its eyes on Wong, and guess who brought him here to England? That was why Drakoff called on Lusting Tuesday, to discuss a deal. A deal, you say? Vignelli asked sharply. We've no idea what their proposition was. Lustig thought he could handle things with just the defense weaponry at his flat. He was wrong. Drakoff double-crossed him somehow and left Lustig half-dead on the floor. Another piece of bungling. The game's not over yet, Buttram graded. Now then, let us go on to this affair of Dr. Jonathan Cool, said Vignelli. Some time ago through our intelligence grapevine, the central director had learned that something was brewing with regard to Dr. Cool, something which smelled most important, perhaps profitable. His red captors had hired the Drakoff network to contact Dr. Cool's son. Chris's whole body tensed at the revelation. So his father had been kidnapped, and he had to be still alive. As you know, Vignelli went on, Dr. Cool is one of the world's top atomic scientists, potentially a most valuable piece of merchandise. Therefore, Todd felt it worthwhile to find out exactly what was in the wind. So you arranged to slip in a double, eh? Exactly. We ordered Nikos to check up on Kuhn's son and prepare one of his dead men couriers by plastic surgery to resemble the you. What about the real Christopher Cool? It appears that Drakov would probably attempt to reach him through the Atomic Research Institute where his father worked. So by drugs and brainwashing, Nico subverted the secretary of the Institute's personnel manager and ordered her to alert him at the first sign of a communication of Dr. Cool's son. Another voice cut in, evidently some toad under me. Call from Geneva, sir. I'll take it, said Vignelli. Don't shut that door when you go out, please. Chris groaned inwardly. So much for his eavesdropping. The button bug was highly sensitive, when a Pomeroy slickest pieces of work, but not sensitive enough to pick up a conversation through a closed door. An hour passed, and Chris finally fell asleep. He was awakened the next morning by a guard bringing breakfast on a tray. Chris had barely finished eating when the door was unlocked for a second time. Colonel Buttram and Pamela slept into the room. Morning, Chris, the blonde greeted him. How would you like to stretch your legs and do a bit of London sightseeing? I have a nice little expedition planned for us. 